Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Knowledge Engaged, the podcast of the University of Nottingham's Institute for Policy and Engagement. This episode is part of our special series to mark the COP26 conference happening in Glasgow in November 2021. And today is a really exciting episode for me personally. I'm really excited to welcome Charles Ogunbode to our podcast. Charles is Assistant Professor in Applied Psychology in the Faculty of Science here at the University of Nottingham. And Charles's work is particularly interesting and relevant for COP26 because while most of the topics that you'll hear talked about during this podcast are focusing on science and technology, Charles's work very much focuses on the human aspect of this particular issue and the particular inequalities in the impact of climate change and what this means for how we can engage people in tackling the challenge. So really excited to, to welcome you, Charles. Perhaps, sir, you could start a bit by introducing yourself a little bit and talking a bit particularly about the, the Engage project. Thanks, Chris. My name is Charles. Thank you very much, actually. But that was a very good pronunciation of my last name. People often stumble on it. So I'm an environmental psychologist, which means I'm broadly interested in how people engage with environmental issues. And one of the core areas of kind of a thread that kind of runs through a lot of the work I do is how people respond to global environmental risks. So things like climate change, biodiversity loss. And what's kind of interesting about these problems from a psychological perspective is that, one, they're problems that involve multiple individuals, multiple parties. It's not really the sort of thing you could easily resolve through sort of the actions of a particular individual. The second thing that's interesting about them is that a lot of the information about those problems are not readily accessible to any one individual. They are often mediated through sort of um, experts or through the media and things like that. So they often get enmeshed in sort of politics and uh, of, of, of society and it just makes it kind of interesting psychologically to see how people kind of engage with them what particular responses they have and how those are shaped by sort of social and political factors so my work with climate change kind of began while i was doing a, my phd so i my, my background is in uh, my first degree is in wildlife management i wanted to become a conservationist when i sort of started out and i spent a year um in 2007 i think it was now so sort of traveling around sort of national parks and game reserves in nigeria and and realized that a lot of the problems with conservation, which was kind of what I was focused on at the time, wasn't really to do with the ecological dimension of it at all. It was to do with people. It was to do with sort of getting people on board with conservation goals um, and objectives and things like that. And so you actually spent a lot of your time just trying to understand, well, what are these people's values? How do we appeal to them? That sort of thing. It seemed basically to be a psychological problem rather than an ecological problem. So I kind of thought from that point that I really wanted to, you know, get into that side of things. So going to climate change, because it's it's this, it's basically the grandmother of all the ecological problems. <laughs> and so uh, I kind of found myself looking at that. And some of the work I did during my PhD involved looking at how people's experiences with extreme weather events shift their responses to climate change in, in the UK. That work was kind of inspired by some of the work by my colleague, particularly Dr. Alexa Spence, who's also a psychologist here at Nottingham University. She'd uh, done some work on how flooding experiences in the UK were linked to people's willingness to act on climate change, particularly in the area of domestic energy use and things like that. So I 
sort of got into that area and I was interested in things like how this links between our experiences. I mean, the experiences are appealing because they're, they're you know, the climate change is highly politicized and people often have opinions on the basis of their political leanings. So there's, there's this general pattern that, you know, depending on where you fall on the left or the right of the political spectrum, it kind of shapes what particular position you hold on climate change and things like that. But extreme weather is appealing because, you know, you can't, there's no debate about a flood having happened and the impacts that it's had and things like that and whether it's increasing in frequency or not, that sort of thing. It feels like a fairly objective piece of evidence. I was at a conference in 2019 presenting some of that work and someone in the audience asked me, you know, was like, oh, you know, this is all really interesting, you know, all this research you're presenting on personal experiences and psychology of climate change and all that. But how does this work within different subgroups, like different cultural subgroups? Because I presented some subgroup analysis talking about how people with different political affiliations respond to flooding in the context of climate change. So they're like, well, but how about different cultural groups? You know, do people from with different ethnicities, for example, think differently? about in the UK and I was kind of stumped by the question to be honest and I was like well I haven't actually I don't have any data to be able to tell you because we don't really ask about people's ethnicity in all the research that I've done I've never asked so at the end of the conference I got in contact with some of my other colleagues and said guys um, does anyone know of any data sets out there that ask people about their ethnicity or their race and uh, you know if that links to how they might respond to environmental sorts of extreme weather events and how that connects with their opinions about climate change and things like that and nobody had any evidence on that. So I thought, well, okay, maybe in academia we don't have that, but obviously um, environmental organizations that are sort of actively engaging with this issue and things like that, perhaps they might have some data or something like that. So we started to speak with environmental groups. And in the process of doing that, that also kind of brought me in contact with, this, with the emergence and the establishment of the idea of climate justice. So could you tell me just a little bit about how that links into your research? Essentially, there are two strands of that work that are kind of relevant to my current research. One is the disproportionate impacts of climate change on ethnic minority communities. And then the second dimension of the problem is the representation of ethnic minorities within our responses to climate change as a society, of which, you know, part of that is, you know, to the extent to which ethnic minorities participate in sort of civic action around climate change and environmental groups, environmental activism, you know, the climate discourse, as it were. When we think about disproportionate impacts of climate change, I think it doesn't seem very intuitive. It seems to a lot of people, this link between climate change and race. But if you kind of think about it, you know, you, you can't really talk about climate change without talking about race, irrespective of whether you use the term race or not. So how does climate change link into issues of race? Essentially, climate change links with race in two dimensions. So one dimension is the on the causal side of things. You know, the greenhouse gas emissions and the industrial revolution and things that kind of have given rise to this contemporary problem of climate change, you know, were made possible by sort of resource extraction that kind of came about from the expropriation of resources from people of color in different parts of the world by Europeans. The idea of race was kind of manufactured to make that possible. So in that way, the construction of race created the problem of climate change in the first place. And then the, on the other side, the other paradox of climate change is that if we look around the world, the people who are most impacted by the consequences of climate change are people of color as well. So if we look at, you know, a lot of the island nations that are highly vulnerable, if we look at, you know, countries across sub-Saharan Africa that really, you know, sort of been 
really seriously impacted by things like droughts and flooding and um, increased pressure from pest and disease, you know, all links to climate change. These are all populations of black and brown people as well. So when we look at this in those ways, then it, it seems inseparable, really. But, but what's really interesting is while that is becoming, you know, pretty fairly sort of uh, widely recognized and accepted within this concept of climate justice within, I would say, the academic, the professional kind of circles around climate change. I've been really surprised at how there's still a lack of awareness around that in the broader public. Christine Aid commissioned a poll in 2020 of, I think, over 2,000 British adults, and only 33% of people believed that climate change disproportionately affects black and brown people around the world, oh, wow. which was quite a surprise to me. So it makes it clear that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of you know, increasing this awareness around this links between race and climate change. Of course, climate change and race are not, you know, politically neutral issues. So if we, if, we, if we step away from race for a minute and we think about the potentially more neutral concept of climate justice, which also includes things like people who are, you know, other areas in which inequalities crop up in society as well. Another poll, actually not a poll, a more systematic bit of research that was conducted by a collaboration of different organizations, including an organization down in Oxford called Climate Outreach. They do a lot of really brilliant work around climate change communication and engagement. And they gathered some data from young people across Europe. I think that they had about 6,000 people involved in this project. And while a lot of people agreed with the concept of climate justice and they agreed that it's important and should be a priority, a lot of people didn't really understand what it meant. So the majority of people in the poll basically said, look, I, I kind of agree with the basic tenet, but I couldn't really explain this concept. So there's still a bit of work that needs to be done around sort of just building awareness of that. Yeah, so that seems like a really important step. How might we go about achieving that? Perhaps one starting point of that is in a lot of the communication around climate justice and around things like racial injustice and climate change, it's often framed as a belief, you know, whatever X proportion of people believe that people of colour are disproportionately affected. And it's kind of like, well, if, if you frame it as a belief, it makes it seem like it's something that's kind of subjective and con- you know, so, so contestable opinion, yeah. which it isn't. It's, it's just the facts, the objective facts are there, but we, we just need to make those facts available to people. And this have implications for what kinds of solutions we consider to be viable you know, responses to climate change. Uh, we need to take all of this into account. That's very thorough. Thank you. And, and very interesting to hear, particularly on a global scale. I think sometimes there can be a tendency for people to think about climate impacts, about something that's happening far away. But I know that part of your research is about bringing it closer to home. Could you talk a bit about that? Yes, exactly. That's a big part of what I do. And it's the same with climate injustices. When people think about examples, it's always, oh, you know, it's those poor people, you know, elsewhere. And so that same distancing seems to apply as well. And um I've been in the UK so pretty much sort of living here since 2012 and even within that period I can see the change in the patterns of you know like the winter floods that we get and the heat waves that happen over the summer and things like you know it's, it's visible and that's within a very short period of time. While there's been a lot of the discourse around climate change it's really kind of picked up in that period you know we're getting media coverage of climate change in the present day compared with what it used to be like a decade ago is just starkly different. You know, public attention for this issue has just skyrocketed, which is a good thing. That's what we want to see. 
we need to now start begin to look at any more nuanced way and, and try to think about well who who's not being carried along what voices are we hearing in this discourse what voices are missing you know what are the broader implications of that we actually had an article out which i worked on in collaboration with colleagues at climate outreach kind of looking at polling in britain in general but also kind of focusing about polling around climate change in particular and the lack of BAME representation in polls. You know, a lot of polls that claim to be representative of the British population, they often are representative in terms of age and gender and social class, but ethnicity is not considered to be a nationally important characteristic. So I turned to people I knew were involved in environmental organizations and kind of encountered a problem which has been ongoing in the environmental sector for a while, which is also this lack of representation of ethnic minorities. So a lot of UK environmental organizations have been facing a quite a lot of criticism. There's the People's Climate March that happened in London about five years now, uh, thereabout, and there was a lot of criticism around that for the lack of representation of people of colour in this march, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, around the world, people of colour are the worst impacted by this, and you would expect to kind of hear more from these communities in these efforts, and um, there wasn't very good representation of that. And then uh, following up from that, we've also had a lot of criticism of Extinction Rebellion. You know, there's this general criticism of the environmental sector that tends to be the dominant demographic is white and middle class. Um, so it's it's also an issue that's on people's minds. And obviously, since the murder of Judge Floyd in the US and the Black Lives Matter protests, that's just kind of supercharged this. Mm-hmm. So how does the Engage project come into all this? So we, we sort of initiated the Engage project to essentially look into, you know, well, we had three broad targets. So the first target was just to kind of get some kind of assessment of the situation across the UK environmental sector. So this is speaking broadly. So this includes sort of campaign organisations and more sort of professional environmental professional organisations to just kind of get a sense of what's the current status, what's the current relationship with ethnic minority communities. So we were, were particularly interested in organisations that had some kind of campaign elements like sorry like an outreach element so trying to reach particular communities or particular groups and we wanted to know you know how ethnic minorities were represented in those campaigns so what kind of communities are they reaching out to who's participating in those campaigns and how much self-diversity and ethnic minority representation is there in those campaigns another goal we had was to kind of get some idea of what the main goals and aspirations of the environment sector of environmental organizations broadly speaking are with regard to engaging ethnic minorities communities. So, you know, what, what, what do they want to achieve? What's, what's a metric of success, of appropriate levels of representation? And also to understand what the barriers, what the challenges are for organizations that want to engage more with ethnic minority groups. And the project is still ongoing. So we started last September and we've got some data in. We've done interviews with people from around 40 organizations across the UK. And it, there's a very strong desire. I feel like there are lots of people who are highly motivated to sort of address this issue. So it's, we've had really good um, engagement, actually. And one of the main findings is in terms of the current state of affairs in the environment sector, I would say the engagement with ethnic minorities, the representation of ethnic minorities is evolving. Most of the people we spoke with, there's this general sense that the environment sector isn't sort of adequately engaging with the issue of racial justice and climate change and also not adequately sort of representing ethnic minorities. But I use the term evolution because even though this is recognised, and there's a lot of efforts to kind of tackle that issue. Often it doesn't feel like there's a uniform direction of travel. Um, and, you know, a lot of people we spoke with kind of talk about how, especially since the Black Lives Matter protests, there's been this sense of it's almost like a reactive 
kind of response from organizations rather than a systematic one. Yeah. So while people definitely want to see some change on that, there's quite a lot of diversity of opinion on whether or not organizations are going about it the right way. Um, so one of the things that came up consistent source of displeasure, particularly for ethnic minorities who are already involved in environmental organizations, who are already engaged with environmental issues and with climate change campaigns, is that a lot of these people get solicited to do sort contribute to diversity um, campaigns or initiatives to reach ethnic minorities without due compensation for the time and the effort they have to put into that and things like that. And another thing that came up was there is a bit of a tension between this desire to sort of find solutions to environmental problems and a desire to resolve historical issues of racial injustices and inequality and things like that. So a smaller segment I would see of people who spoke to would say, well, I understand, you know, I, I fully appreciate that, you know, the, the issues of racial justice are really important. I totally recognize that racial injustices and climate change are intertwined. But being a climate organization or particularly being an environmental organization, our main message has been around the need for an urgent response to environmental issues. And there's some concern that if we then kind of seem to be also turning our attention towards racial issues, it might kind of detract from the sense of urgency we want to build up around the environmental issues. Other concerns that people voiced were things like environmental issues and racial issues are not politically neutral issues. And there's some concerns as well amongst organizations about alienating segments of their membership who have historically supported them with funding and resources and volunteered their time and things like that. And we're interested in also just kind of think about, well, what are the motivations um, for these organizations? Why do people want to see more diversity within their organizations, environmental organizations want, want more diversity? And um, one of the main motivations is this desire for legitimacy to achieve more impact, to have more influence. You know, a lot of organizations want to see sort of visible validation of any sort of claim to represent what is self-evidently a multicultural British society. So we need to see more sort of people of color. We need to hear more from people of color in this movement. People also talk about benefits to ethnic minority communities as well. So I think there is an assumption, which is not necessarily founded, that ethnic minority communities don't necessarily, don't tend to engage that much with environmental issues. And the common rationale for that is that, you know, a lot of ethnic minorities also deal concurrently with socioeconomic challenges, poverty is an issue, a lot of people are in low-income jobs and things like that. So they, they just haven't got that bandwidth to also bring in issues like environment into that. Now, this is a, an assumption that's very widely held, but also highly contested because, again, sometimes the delineation between what's an environmental issue and what, what's an, a social issue isn't necessarily that clear. So, Do you have any examples? Yeah. So one example I like to use is to talk about the issue of environmental pollution. If you live in an inner city neighborhood with very heavily polluted air and you're, you know, working very hard to try to sort of protect yourself, protect your family, maybe move away from the place to, you know, to address that issue, to avoid that issue. To the individual who's doing that, they might well see it as, well, I just, I'm, I'm trying to work hard. I'm trying to better myself economically so I can make this move away for my health or for whatever reason. That's how they might think about it. But if we think about it from a more macro level and we think about the role of, you know, fossil fuel combustion in cars and how that contributes to climate change, that aspect, that joining a campaign to regulate, you know, cars coming through, that is a climate action. Whether that person 
thinks about it as that or not. So often those delineations between, you know, what's an environmental action or what's engagement environment and engagement other kind of social issues isn't necessarily that real, basically. So would you say that there are barriers blocking ethnic minority groups from getting involved in the climate conversation? Yes, absolutely. A lot of people feel like they don't know enough about the issues to be able to really participate in this movement and organizations and things like that. And I kind of share that feeling. I, I totally understand where that comes from. I, I've been working on climate change for about seven years now. I go to conferences, I speak with climate scientists, I speak with social scientists, I speak with all sorts of people. And I often go to some meetings, especially when it really gets into the sort of science and technical side of things where I feel like I don't understand what's going on. But I think for somebody who's not engaging with things like that professionally, it's even more daunting. It's like, well, do I even know about this to be able to like confidently voice an opinion or something about this issue? So that, I think that's a big challenge that needs to be self-addressed. And there's also the challenge of the sector relies so heavily on volunteers. A lot of people have to just sort of volunteer their time and things like that to get involved in activities and to be able to contribute and things like that. And you know, a lot of uh, people from ethnic minority backgrounds who are not necessarily socioeconomically well off are, are incapable of, you know, sort of making that time to uh, sort of volunteer to do this thing. So it's quite a complex area. But, you know, as we come up to COP26, one of the key messages we're trying to get out there is that issues of social justice, racial justice, you know, climate justice, they're all so intertwined. We cannot really think about solutions to climate change without acknowledging the sub-justice elements of them as well. And that means that we need to engage with the communities that are affected, you know, disproportionately by this impact. We need to bring them along. They've got to be active participants in the development of solutions, in the debates around, you know, uh, and the choices we make in terms of going forward on climate change. You know, for example, I, I feel, you know, I'm Nigerian and I, you know, in my sort of professional activities, I'm often quite sort of struck by, you know, when people say, you know, things like, well, you know, the 1.5 target is pretty much it's a non, you know, non-starter at this point. We're not really going to be able to meet up with that. And even two is looking very, you know, I think there's a way that that can come across as kind of, you know, sort of blasé when you make a statement like that, sitting comfortably in Europe. It's, you know, obviously, I'm not saying that Europe or the UK or North America is, I mean, we've, we've you know, seen what happened, for example, over the summer in North America. We're not kind of insulated from climate change, but we still are relatively to some other parts of the world. You know, the difference between 1.5 and 2 is a huge number of lives potentially in other parts of the world. And I feel like we have very strong moral responsibility to bring those people along. Yeah. And in the UK in particular, it's really important here because we have a lot of diaspora communities that have connections to those places. And the me- members of those communities are, you know, our communities of people of color here in the UK. I think they have a really big uh, and important role to play in the UK's involvement in things like COP26 and just our position as a leader on sort of the global response to climate change. So there is a responsibility there, I think, for everyone, so from government to environmental organizations to other civic groups that not necessarily thinking that their mandate necessarily extends to climate change. But I think climate change basically is a mandate for everybody because it affects all of us. So, Charles, uh, it's absolutely fascinating work, really crucial stuff, as I'm, as I'm sure our listeners will appreciate. Can you give us a bit of information of where people can go to find out more about your work? 
so yeah, you can learn more about the research by visiting Neil, that's N-W-E-L hyphen lab.com forward slash engage. So all of the work we're doing around engagement with ethnic minorities and environmental organizations is accessible through the website. And we have reports and we're also going to be putting up some sort of videos and things in this period around COP26 as well. Charles, thank you so much. I personally found that absolutely fascinating. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will too. And really uh, just as such an important aspect of this whole this whole topic that I'm really glad to have had the chance to discuss with you today. So thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Knowledge Engaged. Do join us over the coming weeks for more COP26 themed episodes. And please do take a look at the caption for this episode to see all the links that Charles mentioned, as well as links to find out more about the Institute for Policy and Engagement. Thank you.